Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Amen. Good morning, church. We're going to go ahead and dismiss our three to five-year-olds. Three to five can head over to their class. And for the rest of us, uh, Dr. Luke is going to be showing us the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. And uh, particularly with that, some key points uh, to his message and what he preached. And so if you have your Bible, I want you to go and grab them. Luke 3, 7 through 20 is where we're going to be. Luke 3, 7 through 20. And so one of the questions that we're going to be asking is, what was John's message? What was his message that he was preaching? What was the message that grew or uh, drew crowds um, out to him in order to hear what he had to say? And, uh, and, and what does that message have for us this morning? And so Luke 3, starting in verse 7, I want to read it. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. All right, so we're just going to stop there for a minute um, because what an introduction to a message, uh, especially for a group of people coming out to see you. That's probably not uh, an intro if you're trying to welcome people um, or make them feel good about coming uh, out to see you, but this is... This is something that's true, and this is something that obviously is biblical, so it's true, but it's something that is needed to be heard. And so what we're going to be doing today in this message is, is being able to see that the truth of the gospel is truth that might be hard to swallow. Um, and, and there's really two things in John's message that are going to be kind of a one-two punch, if you will, that are just hard to hear. And I think it's necessary and important for for us to hear it in our continual growth in the gospel, in our continual walk with Christ. But it's also necessary for our world to hear this message because it is what the Bible proclaims. It is what the Bible teaches. It is what God wants people to hear and understand if they are ever going to truly see the gospel as good news, as, as news that is to be treasured as the person of Jesus for him to ultimately be seen as what he has come to accomplish. We have to understand this message that John is bringing to the people today. Now, we got to remember, as we mentioned last week, that this John is a nobody respectively. Again, this is a man who has been in the wilderness since birth. He wears camel's hair for clothing and eats locusts and honey. Um, he would have been taught by his father, Zechariah, and his mother, Elizabeth. Uh, we aren't really sure if he's had any other formal education other than simply the word of God came to him. All right, that, that was his formal education. From worldly standards, a completely insignificant person. However, this man becomes the talk of the town. All right, he, he garners celebrity status quickly and early in his ministry to where it says that crowds came out to him, that they drew towards him. And he begins preaching the word of God that came to him, and people start coming in droves. But what was the message? One thing to mention in regards to this is first and foremost that just because 
um, crowds come out to him does not necessarily mean that that translates in disciples, that it translates in disciples. Some people will try to go and say, you know, John the Baptist is the first um, miracle preacher, that he's the first one who's doing so many signs and wonders that it's just drawing everyone's attention and entertaining them to be able to come out, and that he's removing all obstacles in order for them to be able to see Jesus. And so he's doing, you know, as some churches might uh, use as a slogan, he's doing everything less of sin in order to win someone to Jesus. And that's just not true. That's not true. The message that he's proclaiming, if we're actually looking at the lineage of disciples that are being made, well, when Jesus is crucified and when Jesus ascends to heaven, there's only about 120 disciples present. There's only about 120 who at this point made it. Who were truly repentant, who were truly baptized, who were truly believing in Jesus. And so just because... Word gets out that John is preaching a message that everyone needs to come and hear doesn't necessarily mean that their hearing actually led to them understanding who they are outside of Christ. Why they need this message. Why they need Jesus. I mean, even Jesus himself feeds 5,000 people in one area, goes over to another area, feeds another 4,000 people. But even again, when he is calling his disciples and giving them the Great Commission, there's only roughly 120. What people don't need is the miracles and the signs and the wonders and the entertaining that's trying to kind of um, break down the barriers in order for them to hear the gospel message. What they need is the gospel message. They need the gospel message. And two things that are found in John's message is baptism and repentance. Baptism and repentance. And so as he says here in, in, Roman, or Romans, in Luke 3, verse 7, they came out to be baptized by him. So part of his message was this idea of baptism. And so what is baptism? John's message was one of baptism and repentance. And, and again, these two things are hard pills to swallow. When it comes to baptism, it's a message of transformation. It's a message of transformation. It's a message that says who you currently are is not good nor good enough for God and it needs to die. Like that's what the message of baptism is proclaiming. That who you are is not good enough. Who you are is not good, and it needs to die and be transformed into something else in order for it to be accepted by God, in order for it to come into God's presence. Romans 6, 1 through 11 puts it this way. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We need something new, not something that is same and then changed by just behavioral modification. We need something that dies and then is raised to a new identity. For it goes on to say, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self, our old identity, our old thoughts, our own beliefs, our own uh, worldviews, our own feelings, all of those things, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. To nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to that old self. Enslaved to our sin. Enslaved to our thoughts. Enslaved to our deeds. Enslaved to our worldviews. Enslaved to how we were brought up in our families. Enslaved to uh, what we think based on what friends have influenced us to think. What we've been enslaved by media around us. What we've been enslaved by the world around us. We're no longer enslaved to those things because we come to the end of those things. We die. For one who has died has been set free from that sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also then live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So dies to death lives to God. This new life is a life that no longer is living for that old self, but is a life that is living to God and for God and from God and through God. And in all things, it is God-centered. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 6, 1 through 11. So there is an absolute transformation that happens that includes death and life. So Christianity is not about bad people becoming good by behavioral modification. Hey, just live these principles out in life. Do these things. Be like, what would Jesus do? Wear the bracelet. Anytime I come to a situation, I just think, what would Jesus do? Well, he would do this. Let me just do that. No, it is not behavioral modification. It is not trying to clean up the outside without doing any work on the inside. But yet, that's what we've watered Christianity down to. We've watered it down to, let's just pluck out the biblical principles that we think live a good life. And then kind of like give those to people in a way that makes us seem better than others. But yet, on the outside, at the end of the day, we're still just dead. Or we're still just dead on the inside. We're still walking in our sins. We still have sins to be dealt with, and we're not dealing with it. We've never actually been baptized in the sense that we've died to our old self and are now living in the newness of life. See, baptism is a message that you have ended the life you live as a sinner and are now beginning the life you live as a saint. That's what the message of baptism is. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer are enslaved to that sin. But for this reality to be true, we must first come to grips with the fact that our born identity is deserving of death. Our born identity is deserving of death. That's the hard pill to swallow. That's, but this is what God tells us. This is what the Bible is telling us. This is God communicating with us the plan to save us from our sin that deserves his wrath. From our choices that deserve his eternal punishment. Man, when we, and this, this is, again, this is the message that does not get preached because it is a hurtful message. 
It is a hurtful message. It is a message that is telling you you're wrong. Just flat out, you're wrong. And your wrongness deserves the wrath of God to kill you. That's what the Bible preaches. That's what John the Baptist is bringing. And he's saying that it's going to die. Now, here's the thing, though. You can either experience one death that leads to life or experience two deaths. And the two deaths is when you're born, you're born a sinner and you are dying because of your sin. And you will die eventually. And if you die without the newness of life, without the transformation, you enter into the second death, which is the death for eternity separated from God, where you are then receiving and absorbing in yourself the wrath of God forever. Forever. An eternal death and punishment. That's what the Bible preaches. And we've tried, theologians have tried to water that down with ideas of annihilationism that eventually you just wipe out and, and, and you just no longer exist. Honestly, I would love that. For those who don't treasure Jesus to just be blotted out from history. So that they don't experience the wrath of God for eternity. But I don't see that in the scriptures. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. As we'll see here in a moment. An unquenchable fire that burns and tortures forever. The fire that never goes out. This is, this is we, we, we have to stop believing. And I know, again, the majority of us in this room are believers. And so there's no condemnation over you. You're, you're not going to experience this. But we need to know this message as we share it with others. This fire, this is due all of us our sin. Our sin. There is no, well, God's just going to sweep it under the rug. It's all right. No, everyone, whether it was a white lie, whether it was something small, whether it was when I was in second grade, I stole a pencil from my neighbor. You know, whatever. We're born sinners. And no matter the degree level of the sin that we've created in our own minds, well, it's not as bad as it doesn't matter. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of that sin, the result of that sin, the payment of that sin is death. And that death is going to be this eternal wrath. As John's going to allude to here in a moment, just this eternal wrath that's going to be poured out on those who don't believe in Jesus Christ. Who don't believe that he is the savior who comes to forgive. That's a hard pill to swallow. But it's true. What do we think is going to happen. To everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus. That they're just going to go to a place that's not heaven. 
and just not have it as good as we are? They're just going to live on the other side of the tracks? What do we think is going to happen? John preaches that change must happen. Transformation must happen. Now, you might ask, why baptism? Why the water? Why the actual ritual? Ritual, And in Jewish tradition, there were ceremonies called ritual immersions. The, the specific term is mikvah. It was a Jewish ritual um, immersion for the purpose of ritual purity. All right. Contrary to what I said last week, uh, which was the fact that they didn't know what John was doing. Honestly, I misspoke uh, because I couldn't find any origins of the term baptism before this. But it's because there wasn't the term baptism in their ritual ceremonies. It was the term mikvah. All right. Which was a different form of them literally dumping someone in water in order to purify them, to cleanse them, to then be able to head into the holy of holies. And so I'll own that one. Thank you for your forgiveness um, as I confess that out there. But the Jews were to a degree aware of this as it was foreshadowing for them a greater need for cleanliness, a greater need. Now, because in their mikvah, in their baptism per, per se, it was temporary, all right? Just like all of their rituals, all of their ceremonies were temporary things in order to provide a little bit of cleanliness for them. But honestly, it was external. It was external cleanliness to then be able to enter in. Now, again, in addition to mikvah and that ritual in the Jewish tradition um, that would allow them to be able to see what John's doing here, in addition to that, we also have all of the foreshadowings and all of the imagery and illustration in the Old Testament of what God is actually doing when it comes to this idea of baptism, when it comes to this idea of, of passing through waters, if you will, in order to go from something that was enslaving you to then freedom on the other side. We have Noah's Ark and the Great Flood. We have Moses being placed in a basket and passed down through the river. You have uh, the passing through the Red Sea by the Israelites. You have Jonah in the belly of the fish. These are all examples of God's deliverance through water, of something that's enslaving you to then leading to something that's freeing you on the other side. And that is something, again, that is alluding to the, the great baptism, the great baptism of the illustration that we are seeing with John and these people, that I am baptizing you with water, that I am causing you to die to your old self and be raised to walk in this newness of life. And what it really does is it provides me, or at least leads me to understand this message. This message of coming to the end of yourself and then being saved by Jesus, being forgiven by Jesus, being ultimately cleansed by Jesus. The song, O Come to the Altar, where it says, Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin. Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. Baptism is literally Jesus calling you to come to the end of yourself. Calling you to die to yourself. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Leave behind your regrets and your mistakes. Come today, there's no reason to wait. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Leave behind your old self and die to it so that you can be transformed. This is what Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. 
From the ashes, death, a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This is what baptism is preaching and proclaiming. Now, with the message of baptism, there's also the message of repentance. Repentance. In a one-two punch strategy, this is the second punch coming from John. That is going to be, again, hard for us to understand or to accept. You need to completely stop. You need to completely stop what you're doing, thinking, believing, feeling, and turn from that to a different way of doing, thinking, believing, and feeling. This is the message of repentance. You need to stop doing what you're doing, thinking, believing, and feeling and turn to a different way of doing, thinking, believing, and feeling. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you to flee, to run from, to turn from this wrath that's due your sin, that's coming to you? Now, before we can understand this practice of repentance, we need to understand the meaning and motivation of repentance. Because some of the people who were coming out to John to be baptized were not coming because they wanted to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. They weren't coming out there because they wanted to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and spirit. They were becoming because they, they were coming because they wanted a free ticket to heaven. That's what they were doing. They were coming out to get a free ticket to heaven. They were coming to get clean on the outside, but still remain dead and unchanged on the inside. Matthew 23, 27 puts it this way. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. These scribes or Sadducees and Pharisees are the brood of vipers that he's referring to, which is another way of saying the offspring of Satan. All right, you're living out the identity of Satan, a sinner, a liar. And that they're not truly coming to repent or change their lifestyle and therefore receive the baptism. Rather, if they were to get baptized without repenting, their baptism is null and void. It's null and void. It actually says down in Luke 7 that they don't end up getting baptized at all. But we'll get to that down the road when we get to it. What then is true repentance? If it is more than me just wanting to go to heaven and avoid the wrath of God, the motivation matters. The motivation matters. If it's simply for avoiding God's wrath and not treasuring God and enjoying Him forever, then we reveal that we've not actually understood God's good message to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It must convict and transform our motivations so that it's not about us, but it's about God. It's not about us, it's about God. Look at verse 8. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That, that's a phrase that we're going to need to hold on to for the rest of our lives. Keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What he means by that is they're coming out to say we deserve this baptism. We deserve our ticket to heaven because we're Jews. Because we are the offspring of Abraham. And he's saying just by bloodline does not allow you into heaven. Your pride of Abraham being our father is you saying, I've misunderstood the original covenant that was established with Abraham. It's not that all of Abraham's descendants are going to be blessed. It's that through Abraham's descendants will come one person who has the opportunity to bless all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the guarantee, they just missed that. They just changed it to say, well, because we are of Abraham, we are all blessed. And yes, to a degree, there is a blessing to them in being God's people. But they are not ultimately God's people if they miss the one who's coming through God's people, Jesus. If you miss Jesus, he's saying, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter. You need to come to the end of your pride when it comes to being Abraham's offspring. For he's saying, I can make these stones turn into people. Because again, if he can create people out of dust and dirt and a rib, he can turn some stone into a person and then save them by the blood of Jesus Christ and make them blessings of Abraham's offspring. So he's saying it's not about what you come from. That's got to die. That's got to come to the end of itself. As he even says here in verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of these trees. You think you're connected? The Lord's about to bring the axe, and what he's referencing there is his judgment. At the end of the day, and I'm talking about the ultimate day, the judgment day, at the end of it, he's got an axe that's coming. For every branch or tree that was thinking it was connected, that truly wasn't, is going to be cut off. It's going to be cut down. For every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thrown into the fire. So for those coming, you brood of vipers, who were believing that they were deserving of this, and are believing that they are the chosen ones of God, and that are believing that the Messiah is for them, due to their pride, and due to their works, and due to their, all their ritualistic ceremonies and whatnot, he's saying your fruit is proving that you're actually not. And you're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Which is its reference for eternal hell and damnation. As Romans 8 says, as I mentioned earlier, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those outside of Christ Jesus, there's condemnation. There's condemnation. And he's saying that's going to be their end result. According to verse 8, repentance is not a one-time ordeal when you pray a prayer and ask God to forgive you and for Jesus to come live in your heart forever. It's not a one-time ordeal. Now, hear me out. Salvation is can be and is a moment. It is a moment. All right, for the Apostle Paul in Acts 10, it was while he was on the road to Damascus. For the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, it was when he met Philip on the road south. For the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, it was while he was on duty guarding the cell. 
For me, it was when uh, my fifth grade neighbor shared the gospel with me and I understood it and God saved me. For most of us, we can think back to the moment when we met Jesus and he forgave us of our sins. And we went, we were baptized in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we were dead in our uh, sin and transgression. We came to the end of ourselves and we trusted in Jesus and he forgave us. Past, present, future. We got saved. We got saved. But here's the thing. Tons of people will say, Lord, Lord, and at the end, we'll realize that we actually were never really believers. We never truly believed. What then marks or reveals that that moment was legit? It's repentance. It's those who keep with repentance. And it's not a keeping of repentance that is um, earning the salvation that's been freely given to you. But it is a keeping with repentance that reveals salvation has been freely given to you. It reveals that you are a new creation. Because you bear fruit and you live out a life that has been changed and transformed. For as Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you live. You live a whole new life. Therefore, repentance is the change of mind turning from sin and toward Christ. In other words, I've been completely wrong. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is completely right. And it's my only hope. What then does practical repentance look like? Well, for starters, Psalm 32, 1-5 puts it this way. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Amen. Salvation. Whose sin is covered. Amen. Salvation. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Amen. That is salvation. And in whose spirit there's no deceit. That's salvation. Verse 3. Here's the repentance. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand, Lord, was heavy upon me. And my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. What he's saying there is, is when I don't confess, when I, when I don't keep with repentance, when I'm not being honest about my old self and my old ways, it kills me. It kills me. And I need to get it off my chest. I need to confess this to the Lord. And therefore he says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. First step of repentance. Acknowledge our sin to the Lord. We don't sweep it under the rug. We don't come up with excuses. We acknowledge our sin to the Lord. Lord, I sinned against you. For I did not cover my iniquity. I'm not covering it up. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Repentance is a daily living a lifestyle that marks a life living in step with the Spirit of God. And confessing the steps we take that are out of step with the Spirit of God. It's living a life that reveals you no longer live for yourself, but you live for the sake of Christ and others. 
This is why the crowds begin asking some questions to John the Baptist. What does repentance look like then? What should we do? If we are to be transformed from an old self to a new way of living, and we are to repent, we were to stop doing this and start doing this, what then does that look like? They ask these questions. What shall we do? Verse 10. And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. All right, if you're reading that for face value, that sounds like repentance is, here, do these things in order to earn something. But what he's saying is, if you've been baptized and you're no longer your old self, but you're a new self, this reveals if you're a new self. This reveals if you're a new self. You're no longer going to live for yourself. You're going to live for others. No longer prideful. But you share, you engage, you look to the interest of others rather than yourself. Someone once became a believer and asked Martin Luther what they should do. And he asked them this question, what do you do for a living? And they answered, I make shoes. And Martin Luther responded with, then make a great shoe and sell it at a fair price. It wasn't that everyone is going to become full-time ministers or overseas missionaries. The calling, on God, the calling of God on your life might literally be, you've now become a Christian. Do what you do for the glory of God, no longer for the glory of yourself. Whatever it is that you do, do it for the glory of God. And show, like, that's going to lead to you uh, seeking the interest of others rather than yourself. Seeking their forgiveness as you engage them with the gospel rather than yourself. Seeking their welfare, welfare rather than yourself. Again, it's not that you are doing this to earn or keep your salvation, but rather you are being what God has made you into, a new creation. Verse 15 goes on to say, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Again, he's showing the picture here. The Messiah, the chosen one, the Savior of the world is coming to be the blessing to the people of the world through the salvation he offers to them. We are all a harvest of his good news. And he's coming to gather us and to store us in the safety of his heavenly barn. But for those of us who are not baptized in the Holy Spirit, which again is revealed by a life that does not keep or, or that keeps with repentance, those people he will burn with unquenchable fire, which means it never ends. Tough pill to swallow there. But it's true. It's simultaneously the greatest news for the world and the worst news for the world. 
There's no gray area in here. And we have just so wanted to live in the gray area of these two truths. That Jesus and his message is that you die to yourself because you are a sinner deserving of his wrath, deserving of his death. And yet, by the grace and mercy and beauty of Jesus Christ, comes to live in our place and to die the death that we deserve so that then we get the greatest thing in the world, which is to enjoy God forever. Who cares about the mansion that you get in heaven? Who cares about the streets of gold? We get God if we're focused on pursuing what we get that's not God we're the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes we're still after materialism we're just hoping that it ends up being heaven and what he's saying is that proves his winnowing fork is at hand what that just means is he's just taking the stuff and he's throwing it up in the air and anything that was flaky and anything that was not truly keeping with repentance, it blows away in the, with the wind. And the heavy, the true believers fall back to the ground and he gathers those up and he stores them in the safety of his barn because that's the harvest that believed in him. The rest, he's going to gather it together and throw it into the fire. What he's talking about there is every human soul that has ever lived in existence is going to come to Jesus with the winnowing fork. And Jesus is going to toss it up. And it's either you believed in Jesus or you didn't. And you've got two destinations. There is no middle ground here. We've got to stop skirting this, this line and straddling this line that we can just um, help people be good. And that, alright, you know, we never really told you that you're um, dead in your sins we never told you that you're wrong we never told you that what you believe is literally leading you to hell that you are an enemy of God by believing that that what you're believing is not God's design he didn't create things to work that way and function that way but you know what I know that you're sincere I know that you have good intentions and I know that you mean well. And so you're not hurting anybody. And because you're not hurting anybody, surely God's not going to punish that. He's not going to punish that. He's going to love you because God loves everybody, right? God is love. This is what we've watered the message down to be. And what we're doing is, is we're just whitewashing people as they're heading off to hell. John's message is a hard one. It's a hard one. But it's necessary. It's going to be the hardest conversation you ever have with somebody that might lead to the best conversation you've ever had with that person. That's what the gospel does. It's bitter sweet. What do we do with this news? We do what John did. Verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. With many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him. I mean, again, he, he wasn't 
He wasn't withholding blows, even to those in political power. Who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife. And for all the evil things that Herod had done. Added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. We preach good news even if it ends with bad repercussions. John here is getting locked up in prison. We're scared that someone's going to think we're narrow-minded bigots. We're scared that someone's going to think we're weird. Or that we're on the wrong side of history. Or that we're mean. That's what we're scared of, right? We're scared of the approval of man. That's the number one reason. Well, I would, the number one reason why we don't share the gospel, one, might be because we don't know the gospel. Two, the reason why those who do know the gospel are nervous about sharing the gospel is because in our process of sanctification, we're still working out this issue in our self that is wanting others to love us and accept us and be pleased with us. I'll tell you this. Share the gospel, and someone who gets saved by it, they're going to be the most loving and accepting person of who you are for the rest of their life. Be concerned about that more than the person that you share the gospel with, and they say, how could you dare believe this? How could you dare tell me that I'm a sinner and that I'm going to hell? How dare you speak of me like that? And then they never speak to you again. That hurts. 100% that hurts. But it doesn't hurt because your feelings were hurt. If you're truly believing in the message of Jesus Christ, what hurts in that moment is that you know they're disbelieving Jesus. That's what hurts. That's what gets to the heart of Paul when he's like, I wish that I myself were cut off and accursed if that meant that my brothers in the Jewish realm would come to know Jesus. That, that's the heart of his evangelism. I mean, this is, it's, it's so hard for me to wrap my mind around that because in him saying, I'm willing to give up everything for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. Which is him saying, I'm willing to give up all relationships, all political status, all wealth, all security, all family, all anyone that I'm connected to. I'm willing to give it all up just for Jesus. But the, the economics of that is then also saying, but because of what I treasure in Jesus, I'm willing to give up Jesus so that they get Jesus. That's what motivates preaching a good news, a message of repentance is because he's seen what he was and what he's become, and he wants to see other people become that as well. Preach the good news and don't worry about what happens afterwards. God saves, God forgives. We just preach the message. And this is what we know about John. His whole purpose was for people to believe in Jesus. This is what the Apostle John says about John the Baptist's ministry in John 10, 40-42. When asking kind of the question, was, was John the Baptist successful with his ministry? Because if, if I'm telling you guys 
to essentially go out and tell everyone that they're wrong? Is that, can you be successful in doing that? In John 10, 40 through 42, he, Jesus, went away again across to the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. That's what I once said of us. I love this. John did no sign. What that means is John didn't turn water into wine. He didn't make any uh, blind people now see. He didn't heal any lame beggars. He didn't entertain them. John did no sign that would draw people out to say, you got to come see this magician. you got to come see this guy with illustrations. you got to come see this eloquent speech. you got to come see this incredible communicator. you got to come see this amazing dude. No, he, he did nothing that would draw people. He told people about Jesus, and they're now realizing that everything he said about Jesus was true. That, that's, that's all we are asking. Is that everything you say about Jesus is true. And that's why we want you to grow in the word of God. Because that's, that's how we know we're teaching about Jesus. I got southern there for a second. <laughs> we want it to be true. We want it to be true. Because when you teach what is true about Jesus... People believe. People believe. They believe. That's what we want. Even if it gets us thrown into prison, or we lose friendships over it, or we get labeled as narrow-minded, or on the wrong side of history. On the wrong side of whose history? On the wrong side of whose history? There's only one history. It's God's story. All of it's God's story. It's all His plan of redemption. There's been wrong sides of history throughout all of history. Are we preaching Jesus Christ for forgiveness of our sins and are then purified by his fire? We will all experience the fire. The difference is, is if we're in Christ, the fire purifies us it does not consume us it changes us it cleanses us just like gold that goes through the process of refining it cleanses us it it makes us like jesus but we're sustained because we're in christ that process is going to feel difficult as we live here okay anytime you're told you're wrong and you're rebuked i mean again guys we can rebuke one another that might feel like we're judging one another. And that's a good thing. All right? That's a good thing. I was rebuked a couple of times this week. And I didn't like it. I don't go around, like, when I meet with you, I'm not like, hey, what do you got for me? Just rebuke me right now. Like, no one does that. But at the same time, if someone comes to me and they're like, hey, I just, you know, I got something on my heart. I just want to share it with you. There's also a part of me that is like, thank you. Thank you. 
because you're pointing me to Jesus. I, I don't want to be out of step. I want to be walking with the Spirit of God. And so it is the most loving thing that you can do is two things for one another. Encourage them in the gospel when they're walking like Christ. And then also rebuke them in the gospel when they're walking out of step. Those are the most two loving things that you can do. And that's what we're doing to the world. We're telling them you're walking out of step and you're dead in it. And we're asking you to come to Jesus and believe in him so that you can then walk in step with the Spirit of God. And we're going to encourage that. We're going to fan that flame. We're going to stir up that pot. We're going we're to just continue to throw truth at you in order for you to see more of Jesus and treasure him for the rest of your life. And so that makes me come back to this song. I think about that song that I mentioned at the beginning, O Come to the Altar, the good news that we are preaching is for everyone who is hurting due to the sin in your life, the brokenness of the choices that you're making that did not work out for us, the carrying the weight of your sin. We are preaching for everyone to come to Jesus who is calling. To come to Jesus who is calling. And so I want you to go ahead and stand. And if you do not have the elements for communion, I want you to go ahead and go back and grab them. My prayer for us is that we understand better what baptism is and what repentance is. And that it's just a coming to the altar of Jesus. A, an altar, if, if you've got a church background, we've, we've kind of um, belittled altars to be the stairs where people would just come up and pray at the end of a service but the altar historically has been a place of sacrifice it's been a place where where they kill something in order to shed blood for the removal of sins and so when we envision coming to the altar we're coming to the foot of the cross where Jesus's body was broken and his blood was shed and that happened so that we could be baptized in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that we could enter into the death of Jesus and be crucified with Him. So that that old self that is wrong, that old self that is sinful, could be put to death. Praise God for that. It could be put to death. And every sin that that old self has created and caused and done and thought and did for others and all of the mess. As Jesus' body is being broken and dying and the blood shed, the blood is covering and doing away with all of those sins. It's paying the price for them to go away. 
to then be buried, dead and gone, once and for all, to be buried. And then because of the wrath that is due all of those sins, us, the wrath that is due, is diverted. And it's satisfied. Because the sins are paid. God no longer looks at them. God does something we cannot. He remembers them no more. He remembers them no more. And therefore, he's satisfied. He raises Jesus back to life. And as Jesus is raised back to life, everyone who is baptized into his death are now raised in Jesus and we live a new life, a new identity in him. And we're in this weird place right now where we're still kind of the already, not yet. We are already, once and for all, forgiven, yet we're still carrying our flesh. I'm still in the body that has sinned since I was born. And I'm not fully glorified in receiving the body that Jesus took on when he raised from the grave. All right, that, it, that would have been, I mean, it would have been true if God did it this way, but it would have been weird if when we got saved, we just like shedded our, our old body and then started like walking around on earth with a new one. That would have been cool, but he didn't do it that way, all right? We're still in this body. We're still in this flesh. And so we are keeping with repentance now, okay? We're keeping with repentance where daily we are revealing that that moment happened. And so we have the power in Jesus to say no to sin and yes to worship, yes to Jesus. Believers are the only ones with that ability. We're the only ones with the ability to say no to sin because we're no longer enslaved to it. We're no longer enslaved to it. So are we hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. We're coming to the altar and we're thanking him for his sacrifice of what he did for us. And that we now live in keeping with repentance and preaching that news to others. Therefore, I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank him now for breaking his body so that you don't have to. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Praise him now for his blood that was shed forgives you of your sins, past, present, and future. It forgives you. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, we are proclaiming, we are remembering, we are worshiping the Lord's death until he comes. Because he died, we get to live. We get to live. And we get to be free. And one of the things that we're free to do is we're free to worship. We're free to worship and get after Jesus. So let's do that now.
Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at